0: Greetings, parish orphans and retrogrades. Happy first Saturday of July as we prepare for the 4th of July in this fallen republic on its getting old birthday here in the United States of America, AD 2022. Today, as part of my promise, we're following up on the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health overturn of Roe versus Wade. And I brought along a friend, Doctor Damon kudahi Thanks for being with us, Doctor Damon.
1: Oh, good morning, Tim. Thank you. It's it's a glorious day. A little bit overcast, but the the skies are clearing up here in southern Louisiana.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Uh, we we have the same thing happening here. It's been. I, I'm not sure if we're going to have sunny weather for the Fourth because it's going yeah. back and forth about 20 times a day. I, I sing the praises <laughs> right. of our neck of the woods right but, uh, it does go back and forth between sunny and cloudy a lot when it's cloudy right uh, it's one setback <laughs> um, so it's been a hot one yeah. yes it has we you and I that is did a, I think an excellent show on IVF about seven weeks hence and wow that was and actually eight weeks hence now Wow and that was really a gem and people people, we're really getting a lot of info from that. What I want to do is translate the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health issue, which is not quite the silent killer that from a moral standpoint that IVF mm-hmm. was. So people might be thinking, well, I know not to get an abortion, but you as a Jin, have a unique perspective on all this. And I, I just wanted to pick your brain today and sure. I wanted to open up, and I also wanted to invite questions, I should say, at the end of uh, the show today here on Rules for Retrogrades, Parish Robins, Retrogrades, um, direct your best questions to this very Catholic, very pro-life object. I'm not talking about myself. I don't that as an <laughs> well,
1: I think you're giving me more credit than I deserve, but I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. I usually give, I try to give more credit than uh, <laughs> guests deserve. No, no. <laughs> you're doing good. What? <laughs> So how about this? What is especially stupid, and uh, it's free reign, There's because there's a lot of areas to talk about here, about the Roe versus Wade majority opinion, which mentions, recurs repeatedly to this idea of viability. Yeah, initially off the bat, this strikes me yeah. like a cancer doctor, uh, an oncologist, saying, well, because... Um, cancer research is really young in in defeating this particular type of cancer. It's open season on on anyone who suffers with this type of cancer. They can be killed at any time. I mean, isn't the goal for medical science to get the age of viability? Mm. This is to you know conception age.
1: Right. Absolutely. Well, going- well, Tim. Uh- yeah, before I answer that we get into it, Let's, I, I just would like to start with invoking the intercession of the Holy Spirit, because these are very profound spiritual um, questions or challenges at the root of all this. So um, I just, you know, I'm just going to read the version I have here, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Holy Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy or rejoice in his consolations. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Amen. So, um, yeah, the viability, it is incredibly arbitrary that that was chosen and it was not entirely honest that viability was ever intended to be a real absolute limit um, for um, the, re- the requirement <laughs> um, that states allow abortion um, and it's certainly arbitrary because what is considered viability in 1973 was different than what would have been considered viability in 1873 and it's certainly not the same as what we'd consider viability in 2023 and and um, and all they had really meant by viability um, in that context was a child that could survive outside the womb. And, and we come down to percentages. And you look at, you know, currently, and it hasn't really changed in the past 20 years since I've been in this profession. Um, you know, we the agreed standard is in the United States at least 23 weeks and five days or just under 24 weeks of gestation dated from the last menstrual period or actually two weeks um, prior to conception, you know, which is just some technical specifics I, you know, like to include. Um, but it's not even universal um, in, the, in the world. In some places like Japan, actually, they will actually do more aggressive interventions to save the chi- children prior to 23 weeks, and they have good success. Um, but 23 and 5 was chosen because that was the point at which about 50 a little more than 50 percent of children survive what they would call intact without any major you know impairment or major um uh problems later in life and then every week after that you know it it uh it improves in terms of and uh the the long-term you know health of the child what and long-term viability so viability is it, it's a very kind of squishy term and you even see it, I was on a conference call um, in the state when, with some discussion of IVF. There was a, a law there trying to force insurance companies to pay for IVF in the state just days, a week after our last show. And um, some of those other IVF doctors um, were talking about non-viable embryos, meaning only embryos that, you know, were actually alive at that time, but not likely to live very long. So you can see how that justification of non-viability can be used to do something that uh, would actually prematurely, you know, end the life of the child. So uh, we were, yeah, by that definition, we're all non-viable, you know, at some point. (laughs) So, but it's, I think the, the word itself is is incredibly problematic, but um, interesting that it was um, Justice Roberts that that was his primary and his sole you know real concern with Ruby Wade and his um, uh, opinion. Uh, but I think that you know that that is you know like just to sum it up. It's arbitrary what viability is, and I think it, there's really no legitimate ethical or moral reason to use that as a threshold to allow you know the extermination and the killing of a child in the womb.
0: Dobbs versus Jackson comes from a relatively short list of Supreme Court dispositions, wherein the disposition differs, even contradicts the black letter law. Famous one that most people know about is Marbury versus Madison. The, the disposition in that case contradicts the black letter law. Um, hmm. uh, also Everson versus Board of Ed, you guys hear me talk, boy, just a lot about Everson versus Board of Ed in 1947. Another scotus case where the where the black letter law is in contradiction to the disposition on the specific case before them. What I mean is, uh, the court will say yes, petitioner granted or pe- petitioner denied, but then the black letter ruling for basically the law, the judge made law being made going forward. You know, judicial review after Marbury versus Madison. Uh, the reversal of the meaning of the first amendment in the case of Everson in this case, the reversal of Roe. Well, um, in Dobbs versus Jackson women's health, it's only justice Roberts, not the entire court that had a, a, a contraposed disposition and uh, black mm-hmm. letter law. So he said, yes, I'm part of a six three majority on the disposition of the case, but no, I'm basically part of a four five minority on whether or not Roe was overturned and that they, they probably have uh, you know who, who can speculate something something yeah, on yeah. Justice Roberts because he he's right. really been a disappointment
1: and absolutely but we'll take it I mean it, it makes the final you know ruling six to three which definitely makes it more powerful than a more narrow five to four. But uh, you know, I, but I it's only think,
0: five four on not on overturning. You can right, have different gotcha. counts of law, so
1: we'll take it. Yeah, I, you. I Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll we'll take him on our side to the extent we he'll get he'll come on our side. So that's good, and it it definitely helps. You know, on the on that, but uh, but yeah, I'm also disappointed that he wasn't more fully able to see the errors of of uh, an injustice of the Roe v Wade decision. But uh, I, I think we're all just still processing this. I mean. Tim, you and I and, and a lot of other friends of ours, you know, probably never thought we would see Roe v. Wade return in our lifetime. We always desired it, but we never thought we would see it. And and I've been very involved in um, even legislation in our state here, the state capitol, and I have was very involved in a case that was decided just two years earlier, not uh, that really against us primarily. And all we were trying to do in this um, uh June um, uh, Medical Services case, we had passed in Louisiana a law requiring abortionists to have the same standards of care in terms of admitting privileges, and that was such a threat because uh, the abortionists in the state weren't will, war, weren't uh, willing to do that that it went to the Supreme Court. And uh, and and again, we were all we were trying to do is literally make abortion safer for women. As pathetic as that is, but I remember in in similar um, laws. When they were being argued before the legislature and proposed by the representatives, they would have to say, "We believe this meets constitutional muster with Roe v. Wade," and they were were talking about Roe v. Wade as if as if it was constitutional. And and so many laws throughout the um, the nation and the various states were not intended to defy Roe v. Wade the way this Mississippi law was. And so, you know, I got to give it to the the state of Mississippi for really intentionally challenging and defying you know the 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 you know the injustice that Roe v. wade has done you know for the past 49 years that's and like
0: I, nullification uh, right? nullification is where in a state legislature ignores uh, an unjust yeah. tyrannical law that comes down from congress and they say we're doing the opposite that's that's nullification this is like federal national uh judicial uh nullification where a a state legislature defied the federal judiciary, and it, it and it was beautiful. And we're we're proud to be from Mississippi. We say, yeah, <laughs> that's why we moved here, man. It happened right after we moved here, and and right. Exciting. Let me ask you this about uh, sure uh, viability. Okay, isn't it a stupid Peter Singer like argument to talk about the viability of a fetus at any level? I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've got this newborn baby here that's usually right. in the room when I'm doing shows now, little, <laughs> little six-week-old Penelope, and she isn't viable without her parents, but Good point. her mother. I, I mean, right. and Peter Singer makes this argument more honestly. Uh, he's yeah. a more honest in, infanticidist. He says, look, you should be right. able to kill something with human DNA until it has achieved Personhood. And personhood means you begin having personal characteristics at about three, two and a half, hmm. three.
1: Wow. I think it also says that, you know, and you know, uh, other primates like gorillas and orangutans that are adults, you know, have greater you know value and dignity than a newborn infant. The same.
0: I yeah, this be is going to be.
1: Too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Peter Singer because I was listening to um, some talks you've given on your Don't Go to College book that's coming out. And when I was in college, I double majored in biology and Spanish. Um, but I had some free time and I did take one class in philosophy. I was hoping to study Aristotle or something like that. And and this philosophy 101 class I took in college it was Peter Singer. It was this kind of nonsense. <laughs> and I was <laughs> sorry. So um, that I definitely I, I, I agree that you know you're really gonna be, you know, disappointed if you expect to, to learn philosophy in college. But um, but yeah, the viability that's so true that. The infant is entirely dependent on the care of the parents, um, and 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 even through childhood. I mean, a seven-year-old can't live on on his own or her own, you know, at that point. So, um, yeah, the the idea that a child is de- is dependent on the mother primarily in utero in no way lessens its dignity, um, its uh, its humanity, its his or her humanity in the situation. So, um, and and you know, the, one of the only, one of the few Supreme Court. Cases that probably one of the only that I've read in its entirety is Roe v. Wade. And several years ago, I read through this, and I've you know been involved in in this work trying to um, <laughs> teach the truth and, and and work for the overturning of it, or just a greater respect for human dignity. And what really struck me is that they claim in Roe v. Wade, among many other um, falsehoods, that they don't know when life begins. And 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 think about that for a minute. The Supreme Court and ruling that states you know, cannot make any um, laws against abortion really through all nine months. We can get into that. Um, that they, they invent this trimester system for this purpose. But they part of their one of their premise, one of their false premises is that they don't know when life begins. And and so I did some research when I've spoken about this and it became clear um, uh, nearly 100 years prior when life begins. And, uh, and And again, this is just something that people don't realize there's. You know, it has to do with the discovery of the microscope. And this um, scientist called Oster Hertwig, in 1876, he published findings about the fertilization that includes the penetration of the sperm into the egg cell. And so, you know, nearly 100 years prior to Ruby Wade, we had a scientific understanding of what conception is and what fertilization is. And so it was entirely dishonest to claim that we didn't know. And then to take it a step further, if we don't know when life begins, you always err on the side of caution. If you don't know that gun is loaded, you shouldn't, you know, yeah. point at someone to pull the trigger, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, just ask Al Baldwin, right? <laughs> so you if you don't know that there's not another a kid behind that, you know, there's leaves rustling in the in the forest, you're not going to take a shot at it because it might be a deer. It might be a kid that's out there. So, you know, that is you know, just a completely disingenuous and, and unethical and immoral proposition to claim that we have to force legalized abortion because we don't know, um, even if even if that were true that we didn't know, which obviously it wasn't. Yeah, it's an excellent
0: point. The, the moderates make this lie that, that they don't know. Basically, how to define life would be if, um, genetically human, right? 46 right. chromosomes.
1: Com- full complement of chromosomes, right.
0: Right, and 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 is biologically living, meaning they're whatever five factors. Cells right? are dividing. Yeah, there's a yeah, cellular mitosis. Right, right. right. So right. that's a lie in the first place. This line is most often sped out by moderates. But you you really have made you have really hit the nail on the head here when it comes to. Let's grant you that we don't know when life begins. Arguendo, out of pocket. Right. Even if so, okay, man, well, I, I know gun safety, like you say. I don't point a gun at anything that might, in any possible universe, have a living human being behind it that I don't intend to shoot, you know, defensively right. or something
1: that's, like that's that. That's innocent, right, <laughs> not, not innocent. A, and yeah. a
0: threat to your family, right. We do, not, we do not take 50-50 risks with innocent human life. And that's precisely what they're doing. What about Father James Martin? He says, uh, like the sophist that he is, the well, thing. Yeah. yeah, it's good that, that Dobbs happened, I guess. But I will say, I'll grant the other side that this nine month old fetus ready to be born is very different from this newly fertilized uh, little, little baby, 10 minute old. Uh, right. fertilized egg. What, what, what do you say to that? No one ever said they look alike.
1: Right. And, and you and I, you know, in our 40s are very different than we were in our, our single digit years in, in, in childhood. I mean, I'm a very different person, you know, as, you know, um, an adult man and father and, and physician than I was as a four-year-old. And uh, there's a tremendous difference, in, in who I am uh, in terms of my abilities and my physical stature, and in many other ways in my knowledge and skills, so much more than when I was a newborn or a two-year-old. So yeah, that's that's incredibly misleading to to make that to make that assertion. Um, I want to give just another analogy, just kind of a mental picture. Um, some people know that I had spent time in the military, and I was in Iraq. Um, Uh, during uh, 2006 or 2007. And at one point, uh, I was a a general medical officer or a field surgeon. I was attached to an artillery unit. um, And we were south of Baghdad. And um, you wouldn't think there's a lot of roles for artillery in this situation. But one of the things they did find to do um, with this artillery unit in Iraq was they were called area denial missions. So uh, many times the the enemy would go into these open fields to launch mortars at the base where we were at. So we would look for potential areas that might be a, a good place to stage um, mortar attacks against us. And we would launch artillery into those areas just to kind of a show of force. However, they would never do it. And this is a principle for those who know artillery. They would never fire artillery unless they had an observer overwatched. They could make sure there wasn't a goat herder passing through there. There wasn't a, a child anywhere in the vicinity. They had to before they could launch this artillery shell into an open field. And you could, I mean, you could have had a, a you know, a calculation that there's a 99 percent chance no one's there. But they wouldn't even do it then unless they had eyes on the target and knew that there wasn't life there. So that's how, even in a military operation, you know, when we're design, we have equipment designed to to destroy and kill. And in that situation, we, there had to be 100% certainty that there was no life in that field before an on, on artillery shell was, was the launch there. That's,
0: that moves us along nicely to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, Dr. Damon, which is the Hippocratic Oath. I mean, this is this yes. whole idea of, of, you know, check twice, fire once, don't be trigger happy. Uh, which governs basically every other realm of possible human danger is stood on its head. Like you've been talking for for, um, the last five minutes. (laughs) How does this not cover the realm of the Hippocratic oath? That is to say, if you know, you take a solemn vow the way Americans take this thing very seriously and other, other Western um, nations, first world nations are, are very serious with their physicians about the Hippocratic Oath.
1: Well, it might be just, yeah, so uh, I'll I'll, I'll give you the Latin, primum non necere, you know, and that's, you know, and that's the principle that it was originally based on, and I believe in that very much in my my practice, and I try to live according to that, and I can give some details and and things that you might not, people may not expect, but um, your audience may be disappointed, you may be too, Tim, to learn that we haven't actually taken the Hippocratic Oath for a couple of decades. When I was in medical school um, 20 years ago, uh, we my every my second year, we all sat around in small groups and we basically tried to come up with ideas of it. We made up our own oath, basically, this idea of taking an oath of our you know, ancestors and our forefathers and our mentors that passed down to us had been obliterated. And so we all came up with some, and basically it was a bunch of platitudes and politically correct statements about cherishing diversity and that kind of thing. But in, in, my, in my group, I tried to, you know, make an appeal for, you know, a principle of just you know respecting all human life from the moment of conception until natural death and not and basically what was in the original Hippocratic Oath uh, against abortion and I remember some of the uh, my other um, uh, my other colleagues some of the other students my other um, classmates <laughs> the, word I was looking for, the other classmates in my group you know kind of hesitated and they said well what will our what will the faculty say what will our professors say they were hesitant to to submit that is a part of an oath What we wanted to contribute not because they disagreed with it because they were afraid that they might be punished by their their um their faculty that they would be looked down upon and that was very um instructive to me so uh, that's kind of where we are i mean we haven't uh, there's been uh, the most physicians today i would argue um, or at least half of them probably have not actually taken an oath that specifies you know that we will not kill, um, take life by, by abortion or even later, you know, with euthanasia. Um, but so that, that is, um, you know, very unfortunate, but in my practice, um, it's not just about abortion, you know, even with, um, obstetrics taking care of women, you know, I, C-sections are a very important tool, but I only do them when they're really necessary. And and so my C-section rate tends to be a lot lower than my peers because I don't, think that that's necessarily to the patient's benefit to do it you know routinely and unnecessarily. And then I do a lot of surgery, for example, for pelvic pain causing infertility via endometriosis, and I do it in a way that's as minimally invasive as possible. you know, only three incisions if I can, and, and as quickly to get them in and out of the OR so that they're not under anesthesia for too long. So you know any good physician today is going to operate by this principle of trying to avoid harm, not operating if not necessary, um, and uh, when operating, trying to minimize the harm done,
0: it's like the first principle of pac- practical reason Aquinas articulates applied to medical ethics, you know, of, of do the good, yeah, or the evil. right. You, would you characterize that this is a big problem, uh, in the OBGYN world? Lazy, kind of flunky doctors, uh, recurring to the c section too quickly because they want to go home. <laughs> there. This, oh, and- yeah.
1: And- it's one of the few areas where you know the the academia of Weby gyn actually likes me because you know I'm one of the few that's actually living up to their you know ideal of having a lower C-section rate. But oh yeah, and and the practical world, um, yeah, it's very. There's a lot of C-sections done between five and six o'clock when the office when, when office hours are finished. Ask any nurse, I works in that. labor. Yeah, it's it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. I mean, so you could. It's it's true, and, and, and I'm meatloaf tonight. Come on, we're gonna cut exactly. you exactly. Or there's a show I want to watch. Or I'm tired, and I've and and my wife, you know, God bless her, she has suffered many a night with me not being there for dinner because I'm waiting for someone because you know with their first delivery to have a vaginal delivery, and then I, I know that if I just wait, you know, a few more hours, um, you know, sometimes you know she will eventually do it, and so it's um, it is uh, it is a certain burden, you know, on the OBGYN physician to do that. So I think that, yeah, certainly there is um, a lot of, uh, and I think even the most pro-abortion secular, you know, OBGYNs would acknowledge that that C-section rates are higher than they should be. Interestingly, um, that even they would agree with, with that point. Um, but I want to kind of, while we're talking about safety in women, I want to kind of move on to something else. There's, uh, in what, and thinking about what your listeners need to hear, Um, There's a lot of talk on the talk shows and and from different pro-abortion celebrities, you know, the misinformation, this idea that, you know, know, abortion is healthcare. And I saw a brief clip of Hillary Clinton, you know, saying that women will die. Um, And I think it's, it's worthwhile to take a a few minutes to point out why all of that is wrong. Um, And, um, and even before that, you know, maybe it's important to, to get some terminology down because there's a lot of um, confusion and, and misdirection. Um, so I don't know where you want to start. Maybe some terminology. Is that a good place to start philosophically? Sure. First off, go, go ahead. But I'll just say this. Yeah. The argument that
0: women, you know, attempted murderers who attempt to murder their young after this is illegalized in their state may die is as stupid and as important to me, which is to say not at all, as murderers, burglars, might die if they break into homes, houses and try to get, kill you, and you're going to get—they're going to get shot. It's like, well, this is this is the the risk assumption of the risk. This is the cost of doing business, baby. Yeah, you you try to murder someone, and you die from your attempted violent murder. I'm not going to cry myself to death at night. I don't know. Yeah, we don't opinion. need to
1: make crime safe. Yeah, I, I think there's another level though. I, I think we can—that's an easy point. But I think there's another level that they're trying to argue that abortion is health care. And, and certainly Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who furthered that lie that Planned Parenthood still uses in their propaganda, he's, you know, before he died and, and after his conversion, he recanted of those lies that he perpetuated that, you know, millions of women are dying from these back alley illegal abortions. And that seemed to gain a, a lot of the public um, perception and, and sway a lot of public that women were doing this anyway. We need to make it safe. That was part of the the propaganda. But there's another um, argument that I think is is equally um, misleading that uh, it has to do with a, a lack of understanding of the terminology. And we talk about the difference between indirect and direct abortion and actual legitimate medical procedures that might be necessary to save the mother's life or the child's life can't be saved. And I think misunderstanding and, and misrepresentation of these kinds of issues is partly what um, allowed abortion to be legalized in uh, uh, Ireland recently, you know, to, you know, to, uh, to my horror. Um, but so let's we'll start yeah, with
0: what this is most basic and yes, these in indirect abortions, which right. the church doesn't teach against, which Correct. have never been illegal, which will never right. be illegal Absolutely. are the most embarrassing baseline for, um, undertaking an argument and yet screaming, uh, Crazy women are screaming about them every day in the streets. So, what's this distinction? Direct-
1: oh, let's start with the word abortion. Um, the word abortion in the medical um, jargon is actually not very specific. Now, when we hear about it, you know, in the context of Roe v. Wade and Dobbs and all this, where what we're really referring to is um, what would either be described as induced abortion, elective abortion, procured abortion, is always a modifier. That indicates it's not medically required, um, that it is something that is done essentially for convenience or based on the desire, the whim of the the mother or the, the father, both in that situation. So, but yeah, abortion by itself. So the most common types of abortion that we talk about, that I talk about in my practice would be spontaneous abortion. That's a miscarriage. And there's debate about how often this happens. Um, as far as clinically recognized pregnancies, it may be. It's probably somewhere around the 10% range. It's it, people argue it might be as high as 50%, but whatever it is, it's not entirely relevant to the matter of um, what we're discussing. But it does happen. You know, we'll say 10%. That's what we are fairly certain. Maybe 15%, depending on age and lots of other factors. So spontaneous abortion is also colloquially known as a miscarriage, and so. Um, When I do the first trimester ultrasound, the the baby's measuring about a centimeter, you know, uh, or a half or so, not much bigger than a tummy bear. Normally I should be able to see the baby's heartbeat in that situation. We're talking about just uh, you know, not lo- more than a month after, um, really a month after conception, I should be able to see the heartbeat. The woman's just found out she's pregnant. If I can't see the heartbeat, that's usually the clearest indication that the baby sadly has died, even though the baby's still in the one's uterus. She might not even know that she, and it's a devastating thing. There's, you know, it's, it's a tragedy. So in this situation, so she can't, this woman comes to me for her first appointment, eight weeks after her last menstrual periods so six weeks after conception, and I take a look on the ultrasound and I see a baby, but I don't see a heartbeat uh, when I should. The baby is far, far enough to than that I should. So there's a new term now. Now we call that, it sounds odd, it's called missed abortion. <laughs> and, and what that really, so it's missed and meaning that the baby has died, has stopped developing. There's no life. We're not talking about, there's, there's not, it's not, the baby isn't non-viable. The baby is simply dead or has, there's been a fetal demise. And so that we often have to intervene, either with a, a process of, we can wait for her to, to pass the remains of the, the child on her own, or we can intervene with a procedure called a dilation and curatage. And this procedure, interestingly, a DNC is the abbreviation, is technically the same thing that is done typically by an abortionist outside of the hospital. It's almost never done outside of a hospital or a medical um, uh, or a surgical center anyway for the case of a miscarriage. So even though the procedure that I do all the time, a DNC is technically, it would look the same. The difference is I'm removing the remains, basically the corpse, uh, you know, tiny as he or she is, uh, um, rather than causing the the death and destruction of a living child. Um, There's another way that this can be treated sometimes by giving medications to cause the uterus to contract. And that is kind of the second stage It's almost what happens with these so-called medication abortions or medical abortions. The only difference is with the the medical abortions that they're trying to push by male now, there's two stages. There's one where an anti-progesterone toxin is given called nifeprex or used to be known as RU-46. Um, But this is uh, designed to kill the child. And then the follow-up would be misoprostol, um, also known as Cytotec, which is a medication caused to... to cause uterus have contractions to then expel the remains. So um, that, that's a lot there, but I wanna go through a couple more terms um, of abortion. So we have um, spontaneous abortion, missed abortion, commonly you know, related. Um, and then we have uh, a septic abortion. And this is a situation much more common as a sequelae to uh, an attempted induced abortion or a elective abortion where the woman gets septic, she's infected. It's extremely rare. I've never seen it in a woman who had a natural miscarriage. The only woman I've ever taken care of who had septic abortions were those who went to and had a legal, you know, uh, in the, the secular sense of the word, illegal. legal uh, attempted induced abortion at an abortion center outside of a hospital, and then she came to an ER where I was at. You know, septic and, and um, you know very um, ill. So I think if we understand that for some groundwork with abortion, then we can go into talking about direct and indirect um, abortion, and in this and I'll let you you know fill in the the language of uh, uh, principle of double effect. But w- the most Clear example, the most classic one that we use would be um, where an indirect abortion may be necessary to save a woman's life is the setting of a tubal ectopic pregnancy. And this is a very tragic and, you know, dangerous situation where the the human embryo, the the baby, you know, as tiny as here she is, has implanted in the fallopian tube. And even though there's been some pro-life doctors that have tried, it's I'm not aware of any situations where they've been successfully able to transfer the child from the tube to the uterus, which would be the ideal. So all that we can do um, to, to to prevent the woman from hemorrhaging from the tube rupturing is to remove the safest thing in way would be to remove that fallopian tube with the baby inside. And that does cause unavoidably the secondary effect of the child dying. So that was probably one of the most classic examples of, or the most common examples of an indirect abortion. Um, and that the church has never taught against.
0: Right. Because the principle of double effect covers, it's interesting in, in action theory, uh, Thomas, argue mainly with the new natural law guys, Jermaine Griset and John Finnis and uh, Boyle, and, and those guys were famous action theorists as, as sort of the new bad guys, if you will, um, who, who argue that a craniotomy is kind <laughs> of like uh, one of these cases where you can have an indirect abortion and the, the principle of double effect will cover you. It actually doesn't for such a thing as a craniotomy where Mm. traditionally the baby's skull, the baby's too big to come out. It comes from a time when they couldn't do C-sections and they would crush the baby's skull. There is no principle of double effect that covers that because there is no first most end or or teleology Mm.
1: that
0: Mm. um, that you're focusing on. What the common person on the street doesn't understand is that uh, principle of double effect operates presuming that there can be a fully foreseeable 100% chance uh, and that is not intended? So something can be intended, not intended while foreseen. That's what makes the principle of double yes. effect go. Like, you're yeah. in your house, you shoot, right. and, and what am I trying to do? Defend myself or, or my, my family if they're advancing on me with a, a knife or a gun? But that doesn't mean we're not claiming we Thomistic advocates of the principle of double effect. The church all but buys this line of reasoning that you don't know what's going to happen. The, the more callow gainsayers of the principle of double effect will say, Oh yeah, right. Like you actually are trying to defend yourself and you don't know you're going to kill someone. No, you you know, you're going to kill someone. That's just the second unintended yet foreseen effect that does get you off the hook for, uterine uterine issues where the baby is fully if you can what are you hoping this is all you have to ask as a proponent of the principle of double effect what are you hoping if you tried to move this baby from the fallopian tube to the uterus uh, are you hoping that it survives you will always know because intent specifies end and form for thomas you know w- whether or not the principle of double effect applies
1: and clearly in these situations, you know, the woman, I mean, it's, it's a, a situation where the woman does not desire the death of her child, and right. it, it, is, it is a great tragedy. And, and I think it's important. I was thinking about this, um, I think last night or this morning, that these situations are rare, but it's important to, to specify them so that we can address, you know, the objections. Um, the other, so it is extremely rare, the situation where, um, we, um, where we can't do everything, where we can't possibly save the life of both. Um, and so you know people might see that as choosing the life of the mother of the child. But the reality is the child can't be saved in these situations. Um, now, there is another extreme where the mother can't be saved and the child can. And people don't think about that and where we can only save the child. And that would be a woman who goes into cardiac arrest. I mean, she's 38 weeks, happens to be close enough to the um, the hospital, she's brought in an ambulance and she has died. Her heart has stopped beating. What do we do then? And this is, you know, or more typically maybe a traumatic um, uh, uh, automobile accident where she's bled out and and now she's pregnant. We do an emergency C-section. We get that baby out as fast as we can. It's called a post-mortem C-section. So the mother has already died. We can't save the mother, but we can save the child. So that's kind of the, that's how rare these things are, where sometimes we can only save the baby. Sometimes we can only save the mother. Fortunately, 99% of the time, you know, we can save them both. And that's any good doctor would always seek to do that. How um, long in uh,
0: those situations, Dr. Damon, do you have to get the baby out?
1: So um, good question. And it, it goes back to the C-section thing. We think there's probably about 30 minutes, actually, believe it or not, 20, to 30 minutes where the baby can survive. Um maybe closer to 20 because they've done experiments on primates where they actually ligated the umbilical cord. How long can the fetal, you know, um, monkey survive after that? And so that has kind of dictated what the standard of care is in medicine. When we decide the baby's in distress, how long can we wait before we get the baby out? And so 20 minutes from the, the decision, you know, from the, we should start the surgery. Um, so, Um, so yeah, it's, it's longer than you would think it's not seconds. It's actually minutes, you know, certainly not an hour, but so if it, if it just happened, the woman just died, you actually do have a few minutes to get her to the OR and do a post-mortem C-section. The
0: ligation of the umbilical cord simulates metabolic. Exactly.
1: Well, it simulate, um, the, the, somehow the you know, the placenta becoming detached or having no further oxygenation from the mother. So the baby is dependent on the mother for oxygen as well as other nutrients, but the most immediate nutrient for survival is oxygen. So there's about 30 minutes, which is much longer than an adult can hold his breath. That's There's, you know, amazing things about the fetal hemoglobin that, you know, can survive hypoxia longer than an adult can. Um, so yeah, 30 minutes is kind of the point where you start seeing profound, you know, irreversible harm um when the baby is hypoxic. I want to make one distinction. Um, when you do this, there's always the
0: risk of if I'm if I'm talking to you or I'm talking to a PhD in philosophy or or, or whatever, or just Steph, Steph and I have these kind of conversations. I'll say things like, uh, well, you know. Peter Singer. I said this earlier Peter Singer it, he's better he's more honest you know he just wants right. total infanticide it's always a danger when you're talking to tens of thousands of people because you'll you'll see it on Twitter later that day someone will be like <laughs> today on Rules for Retrogrades uh, Gordon said Peter Singer is better than than a normal right. advocate for abortion because Peter Singer thinks you should be able to kill a baby a born baby of six months I'm like Not, not better. He's he's worse. He's a monster. He's also a complete idiot who argues for animal rights. But I was saying he's more honest insofar as he pushes the logical consistency, rational considerations as far as they'll go the other way. So I want to I want to get that out there.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah,
0: I I hate Peter Singer. I don't like him, but he's. He's more prone to, you know, his arguments anyway, being set on the shelf so we can we can really see out there in the open what the secular humanist perspective on the young are, and they're much right. more the equivalent of the secular humanist perspective on the old, you know, basically, just kill someone once they get too old to be inconvenient.: worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. the view, and it's not restricted to pre-born baby. I mean, what a stupid distinction. As an OB-GYN, can we just maybe hmm. you take <laughs> us out and then we'll take some questions for you from hmm. the audience if they have them. What, wow. Why is, isn't this the dumbest distinction ever? ever, whether or not a human is, forget viability, but whether or not it's living inside its mother is the distinction that even many moderate conservatives have bought for decades. I, I mean, it's, it's, is it a human baby or not? Right. With half a brain, why is this? Why has this been so compelling to the simple minded that if a baby is living inside the uterus of its mother, it's not a baby?
1: It's, and it, I don't think it really is, if you're honest. And that this was a, <laughs> this was something, a, 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 um, eureka moment or a real insight for me a few years ago, um, maybe 10 years ago, that. You know, because for years, you know, and I'm sure you were in the same situation, Jim, we're, we're trying to argue the science, we're trying to say, you know, you have the full complement of, of DNA, this is what conception is, but when it really comes down to it, you know, we, you know, as Americans, the people who want, who desire abortion to remain legal and option, it's not because they really have any misunderstanding about when human life begins, whether or not, it's because they want the convenience, as Mother Teresa famously said, um, that is a great that a child must die so that you may live as you wish. It's really um, a great poverty that a child must die so that we may live as we wish. It, that it's really about profound selfishness and narcissism that we really, when it comes down to it, we believe that we should be able to kill our child for our for our own advancement, for our perceived you know, good, for our our own um, pleasure, our own convenience. And, um, and, and that's what it really comes down to. And um, a couple of points I'll make because now we're running short, a little bit on time, but um, there's uh, going back to the health thing. Another thing that has been promoted internationally is this idea of um, maternal mortality. And when there was a big push 10 years ago to force Ireland to legalize abortion as, as, as a part of their membership in the European Union, you know, they were claiming that this was a maternal health issue. And, and I wrote about this at one point, um, and I'll, I'll just read a little bit from here. Again, this is 12 years ago. Sadly, they, you know, had thought they were initially taken a stand. But at that time, Ireland had uh, arguably the lowest maternal mortality rate in the world. Um, so as of 2010, when I've written this, Ireland was ranked number two in the world for lowest mortality rate. Um, Greece's maternal mortality rate was slightly lower, but they had a very low birth rate. So they're in a very small country. It was only like a a 1,000th of a percent difference than, um, however, Ireland had a much higher birth rate, more comparable to that of the United States. The United States, Uh, was ranked, I think it was 24 on terms of maternal mortality rate. We had one of the highest abortion rates in the world. So there is just looking at epidemiology, there's clearly no statistical, you know, correlation between legalized abortion and maternal safety. In fact, quite the opposite. So if you actually looked at the data, you know, that a country where abortion was illegal actually did not in any way have any adverse harm, you know, statistically to women, um, and that, that's, that's just something that I think we just need to get out there because, again, that sways people, this idea that there's some health need, that somehow women are going to be protected by keeping abortion legal. Um, and then, you know, I think that I want to share another insight and, and having been involved in this work for at least three decades now, is that it's easy for us to become focused solely on the life of the child who's threatened. And that's good. That's our natural instinct especially as fathers and men, you know, to protect the, and defend the innocent. However, um, as Catholics, we, we see that there are eternal souls at stake. And I'm going to, you know, um, give credit to a, a good friend and mentor of mine, a Dr. Jose Fernandez, uh, who's a fine practice doctor in Kissimmee, Florida. And I was at a Catholic Medical Association conference down there once, and he made the point that with every abortion, it's not just the child that dies, it's the soul of the mother that dies, the soul of the father, oftentimes the soul of the, the doctor who's committing the abortion, the the, the so-called escorts. And you're, you We're have these. The child,
0: that's the great. Exactly. All.
1: That's deprived of the sure way we know to salvation of baptism. Yes, yes. And that's a whole nother <laughs> ball of wax, but, but, you know, clearly condemned, I mean, in terms of, you know, directly intending a great evil. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that one child's murder, you know, the spiritual wreckage that creates, you know, for so many other people as a ripple effect um, is, is what, you know, we need to be really attuned to. And that, that first rule of our faith, you know, salvation of souls.
0: Yeah. Imagine, imagine a baby being delivered, baptized immediately and then it dies 15 minutes after it's born. Like, um, I have a friend, many people here know him, uh, Patrick Coffin, whom. Um, who, mm-hmm. uh who's spoken lots of, of this tragedy, but babies baptized. Abortion not only is a mother, the person most charged with the you know care and love of, 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 a, of a young baby early in life anyway, uh, become murderer murderous, but also you know this is an unbaptized baby that that's a really hard reality. so what? What a horrible, horrible thing! Is there any country with higher abortion rates than the U.S.? I thought we were head and shoulders above. I, I thought we just led the world in this um, dubious distinction.
1: That I, I know Russia was first to the punch of legalizing abortion, widespread, and they may still have higher rates. Um, but uh, but yeah, we are. We may still be the highest in, in terms of sheer numbers of abortions. That that's a statistic I don't have right now. But uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll just share. You know, when you were speaking about that, Tim you know, I'll never forget, you know, and I've had the, the honor of being able to baptize many children that were an imminent death, you know, before a priest or a deacon could get there to do it, you know, really. Um, um, and, and setting of this baby's born premature, 18 weeks, and it's going to die within minutes. And so um, there's been dozens of kids I baptized, but one was a baby that was fully formed, which isn't that common. Many times in ectopic pregnancies, the baby's already died, but this is one where I was in the OR, had removed um, the fallopian tube, and that you know, the, uh, and the family had asked me beforehand and I was literally holding this baby again, that I like to use the term gummy bear when you're looking, but you know, this tiny, if you can imagine, and the heart was beating, I'm certain of it. And I, the nurse brought me some water and I was able to baptize a child at, at that size in the operating room. Um, and, uh, and that's something that, you know, yeah, certainly if at all possible, you know, we should, you know, yeah, that's an argument for infant baptism, but sometimes even before birth, um. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, safety, you know, that's something that, you know, I think that we need to really, the truth is on our side, uh, is, is something that I want to leave your audience with in terms of safety. You know, abortion is not legal because it's, you know, health care. And in, in fact, you know, the, the evidence shows that abortion is health harm and we can go into, you know, psychological harm, increased risk of suicide, drug abuse, depression, even a post-abortion syndrome for many women. Um, so I think pointing that out helps people to reconsider, you know, this, um, what they've been hearing, this idea that abortion is somehow healthcare and somehow good for women. Um, it's really only, you know, a perceived good for convenience and this, you know, false, you know, desire of, uh, of, of self-serving, you know, um, decisions.
0: Non-negligibly raised
1: cancer rates for breast and uterine cancer. Certainly. Oh, Yes. Why is that, do you think? That's a good question. So um, there, there are a few physicians um, uh, that have studied this, and so what happened this actually goes into the physiology of uh, uh, breast cancer and breast development. It's particularly a problem with a woman's first pregnancy, um, and it's distinct from a natural miscarriage. So um, and, and we have to be honest that the majority of a, you know of abortions probably are you know, a, a woman's first pregnancy, and those are the ones most at risk for the increased risk of breast cancer. And the the the, um, and it appears to be the most biologically plausible explanation is this: is that a woman goes through the final maturing of her breast not after puberty, but during her first pregnancy. That's when you have these. Um, Milk producing cells within breast tissue that mature for the first time in a way that they can make milk and preparing for nursing and breastfeeding. And this process is there's a lot rapidly dividing cells. That's why women oftentimes the first symptom of pregnancy is breast tenderness. And um, and so with a natural miscarriage, there's sort of a gradual drop of the hormones. And so this process of breast maturing, you know, kind of stops pretty early but in the the situation of an induced abortion uh, procured surgically or chemically caused abortion, you have an abrupt artificial drop in hormones. So you have these cells that have been dividing in the breast rapidly multiplying, and then you have it quickly cut off. So you have a lot of these immature cells that have never fully developed. And so that those cells that have been rapidly developing and dividing are more vulnerable to um, go on to cause breast cancer. And so that seems to be the, um, the uh, some of the physiology behind why they have observed significantly higher rates of breast cancer in women who've had abortions, particularly the first child. And there's there's other reasons why we see high rates of breast cancer with birth control pills. Also again, for women who haven't had children yet, that's the highest risk group. I'm more familiar with that statistic. It's about a forty percent increase risk of pre-menopausal breast cancer for a woman who's been on birth control pills particularly after being on them for about five years, which is, you know, all these high school girls put on the pill that haven't had children yet because they're, the woman's, you know, there's correlations between breast cancer and the age at first pregnancy. So the younger a woman is, um, when she has her first full-term delivery, the lower her lifetime risk of breast cancer. So there's something protective about having children against breast cancer. I mean, we could go on. This is some major stuff.
0: That's really yeah. the younger a woman
1: has kids, the more yeah. protected. The and, the, and the more children she's had breast cancer, the only thing that a woman can do, interestingly, short of like mastectomy and remove the ovaries to simultaneously reduce her risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer and uterine cancer is to have lots of children and starting at a young age. (laughs) So um, the woman with the most children um, uh, you know, and starting at earliest age are actually the woman that have the lowest risks of breast cancer. It used to be thought of as like, the nun's disease breast cancer is almost unheard of except in, in, and among religious sisters, a celibate that didn't have children. And, hmm. uh, and we really didn't see the explosion of breast cancer take off until you started seeing delayed childbearing. But at the same time, it was consistent. It was, it seemed to be timed with the introduction of artificial hormonal birth control pills, which was doing a lot of harm. And again, there's uh, a, another good friend, Dr. Um, Chris Callenborn done a lot of work um, dr- the connection between Birth control pills, hormonal contraceptives, and breast cancer. Even a secular organization, the World Health Organization, has has seen that. We're getting off topic of abortion, but <laughs> these things are related. Um, and I think you know uh, that's something we could talk about further, maybe at a future show. Because that's cute. you know,
0: I like yeah. My wife is my favorite. Favorite person in the world, and I'm I'm a hypochondriac, and uh, minus two. <laughs> I'm always worried about that.
1: So, like seven seven kids, that's a good shield. Against yeah, she's definitely lowered herself in the lowest risk category for sure. Great. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> Doctor
0: Damon, it's been great. Yeah. Are you prepared? Uh, uh, you already said you are to have some questions. Sure. Absolutely. As as you you gather those up. I want to just remind folks: this is the Fourth of July weekend, Independence Day. Lots of my audience, lots of trads have had a lot of conflicting brainwash uh, flushed in about the really honestly complicated origins, the the etiology of uh, the American intellectual tradition. And I mean, 1776, the Declaration, 1788, the the Constitution, 1791, the Bill of Rights. I set this all straight in Catholic Republic. And On the 4th of July, I think it'll come up first thing in the morning, I have an article called something like Four Years of Catholic Republic, and we're celebrating. The book's been out for four years, and I dispel some of the major, I I say gainsayers with with a set of scare quotes around it because they're weak arguments, but some of the gainsayers of the ideas of Catholic Republic are mainly setting up straw men. And it's going to be a really good article and you're going to see lots of, uh, you know, the, the equivalent of, of crying libs are kind of, uh, you know, crying, staggered letter. Oh, but America's a Masonic country early on. Yeah, it is now. It wasn't it wasn't antebellum America mm-hmm. it wasn't before the Civil War. It was it was quite based, even though it was set up by mainly Protestants. So, so that I'll, article, I'll, look out for that article.
1: Yeah, I want to go ahead and give you know, uh, you know, endorsement. I, I read that book about three years ago, not long after you published it. I think I have the original copy that Milo published. <laughs> Milo so um, yeah. yeah, that, yeah.
0: that, that, that gives can, you an
1: idea how long I read it. And uh, but it uh, it definitely gave me a lot of hope for the founding principles of natural law for our country. Um, but until the Dobbs decision last week, you know, I still it was very guarded. I have more hope than ever before. Of restoring our country to these principles of Catholic natural law you know more than ever that I thought it would have you know for for this country and so this is going to be a particularly wonderful Fourth of July and um, yeah so I'm looking forward to that article
0: Dobbs is proof of concept Dobbs' is proof of concept uh, as they yeah. say, like now look even before Dobbs when uh, you said that there's a beginning and I didn't ever um, you said you probably agree with me Tim I do agree with you I did not think we would see the overturn of Roe in our lives. But even when I wrote this book in 15, 16, 17, 18 was the second edition. I always had hope for a kind of survival of America, which is the. Vulcanized secessionist version of America. Thomas Jefferson wrote, uh, wrote when he was vice president that the future of American happiness depends not on all of the states in the union currently until forevermore remaining in the Mm -hmm. union, there's some version of American happiness will persist as long as some of the American States carry forward the banner. So that's what I've always believed in. It's like, look, what, what, what I believed before Dobbs, what I continue to believe now is you need some, some American balkanization. There's no such thing as a continent sized Republic. And I'm hoping that Dobbs will hasten the dichotomy further uh, between blue and red and then we can really get down to business even more we can get specific mm. we can get christian we can get even specifically catholic states sure. Once we sever off those those pesky blue states that's why i really <laughs> want everyone mm. uh who's good to get to some sort of red state it's better to be in one of the contiguous red states most of the red states are contiguous so right. read my article on one peter five on july the fourth it's gonna produce lots of uh the equivalent of a, a crying lib is a sort of crying somewhat brainwashed not willing to be corrected uh trad who's like but america's masonic it's going to be good Do we have some questions. good
1: questions yeah, we have, yeah. We, have, we have lots of questions so just tell me tell
2: me um, dr. Konicky if you are running out, out of time here but um, first off I wanted to say I love when you come on the show it's so interesting and everybody in chat has just just loves whenever you bring your thoughts and um, uh, oh, thank you. the medical world here um, more personally um, you know I want to thank you you've helped me quite a bit um, since I've had so many c-sections with some really great advice but um, one of the questions I know a lot of people have we it's an received. Honor ton of emails from women because they all know, you know, I'm very public about, I've had uh, six Mm -hmm. C-sections, you know, and we've we've, we've talked about that quite a bit. Tons of emails about about that issue. I'm wondering if you can give any insight to that. A lot of women, you know, get a lot of bad advice about multiple C-sections. I'm wondering if you could
1: maybe say. Sure. Oh, thank you. So there is no established number of C-sections beyond which we can say it is, um, you know, contraindicated to get pregnant again. And, and what that means is there's no medical evidence to say that there's a limit to the number of C-sections that a woman can have. You know, personally, I've done, I can think of this past year, an 11th C-section at least once. I've done several other high orders, seven, eight, nine, 8, and, and by the grace of God and, and and the good medical team I was able to work with, she did fine. She went home three days later, like 99% of our patients with C-sections do. Um, There are very rare situations where a woman after even one C-section, it might be advisable to um, not get pregnant again. But these are extreme. These have to do more with um, rare um, heart problems and things like that. Um, So that's an important thing just to put out front. And again, if you look at the medical research, they can't they don't have any evidence to to make the claim that you shouldn't have more than three. These are merely personal opinions of doctors. If they, if they say you can't get pregnant again after a third because you have scar tissue or because your uterine wall is thin. Um, So that, that helps because that that is, you know, and sometimes the highest levels of the church, there's been misunderstandings of that, that whether it's five or six or seven, that it is um, that it would be, Reckless and um, irresponsible, you know, this would somehow be an, an example of irresponsible pan uh, irresponsible parenthood to get pregnant again, and that is simply not true.
0: Well, Pope Francis said it. I, I was shocked, Dr. Damon, to find what you're saying absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. There's actually, it's more that there's it's, it's less that there's not evidence for making the claim that multiple c sections is dangerous, and it's more that they're lying, right? Because when I looked at the actual numbers. After a woman has her first C section, her, her odds go up a little bit of future, right. future rupture. But but right. between so between the first and the second C section, yeah, you see a little spike, right? But between the second and the third, third and the fourth, fourth and the fifth, fifth and the sixth, I, I forget how high I looked, but the numbers don't go up much at all after that. It's just after one, there's a a slightly heightened risk.
1: Right. And that is true. Now, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that, you know high order, you know as a woman gets older there's risk there's increased risks of high blood pressure and gestational diabetes and there's increased risk of um, miscarriage and that has to do with the age of the, the eggs and things like that but there is there are unique complications um like a condition called the placenta previa that are unique to c-section but those are dealt with in a different way um, in the ordinary situation, just having, you know, um, a, a seventh or eighth pregnancy, you know, is not something that um, we, there's evidence as you, you know, concur, as you've also seen um, that we should advise and automatically, purely based on that, that a woman should get pregnant again. So there are, you know, so I do, there is a caveat that there are unique risks to uh, high order C-sections, but it's not necessarily catastrophic to the point where, we should be, you know, universally uniformly telling women that you know, they shouldn't get pregnant after a third, for example.
2: Yeah. Thanks again. I wanted to, to publicly thank you for that because you gave me so much uh, confidence and peace of mind, uh, especially that last couple of weeks that I I was waiting to have my C-section. So you're uh, welcome, doctor. Um. The next question is: What are your thoughts on home births?
1: Hmm. So um, I, that's it's funny. I I'm also known as somewhat of a radical, not only because I don't sterilize um, women, but I'm very supportive and I'm willing to bring women to my office to do ultrasounds, even if they're not planning to come to me for delivery. So I'm a friend to the midwife community. Now I've never witnessed a home birth, but I know um, many I know many women who have had them and have had good experiences. Um, you know, I'm a you know with my wife and I are pregnant with our first child over 20 years ago. Um, we had taken this class called the Bradley method. And this was started by a very, I think he would have been pro-life if you lived today. Um, uh, pro, his, his book was called husband coach childbirth. I think you, you, you guys would appreciate this. And he really saw the role of the husband as being the primary support person for the woman throughout the pregnancy and labor. And, and uh, it was a time before that wasn't politically incorrect, but he, interestingly, he was no an ob and he didn't advocate home births. He still believed that hospitals were the, the safest place to have a birth. And, and I think that is, you know, arguably, I, I still believe that too, that a hospital is the safest place. I think birth centers are a little bit better equipped than a home. So I, I work with a midwife that has a birth center and, and there there's a facility and, and she has, you know, certain protocols and medications that, you know, and monitoring equipment that may not be as easily brought into the home. So um, I think that you know even again the secular um, American College of OBGYN, you know, will um, still acknowledge that there is that can be done safely. I think they kind of try to take a little bit of a agnostic approach and not endorsing it, but at the same time not condemning it. So, um, but yeah, I would I'll be the same. I, I wouldn't you know say that it's unsafe. I think for the you know very low risk patient for a very competent midwife, you know that's um, that's fine. and and, I, and I'll just share that. When I lived in Pennsylvania before coming here, we, um, I was at a Catholic hospital, a very pro life Catholic practice, and we took care of a lot of um, uh, Mennonite or Amish you know, women who primarily did home births. But when they had problems, they would drive some, further than we would have liked to them past other hospitals because they trusted us that we were pro life. We weren't going to sterilize them uh, or do a C section necessary.
2: Okay, great. Um, thank you. Um, um, somebody's asking, is it true that the baby does better after a natural delivery?
1: Um, there are, you know, benefits to having a vaginal delivery when possible. Um, there's um, a slight increased risk of what's called transit to kidney of the newborn. We think that with a vaginal delivery, there's a little better squeeze, kind of squeezing that fluid out of, out of the lungs when the baby's passing through. Um, but more than the baby, it's the mother, really. I mean, the, I think the benefit to the mother having a vaginal delivery is probably the, where the, the big issue is. And so that's why it's worth it to me and for my wife, you know, secondarily to, to make the sacrifice of doing, uh, you know, of my you know, time and attention to, to whenever possible, allow women to have a vaginal delivery. Because particularly with their second pregnancy and, you know, it's a lot easier in her, the recovery uh, after a seventh you know, pregnancy, if she had a vaginal delivery. And so that first vaginal delivery is important, but, but yes, there are actual benefits to the baby, um, you know, for having a vaginal delivery. Now that said, you know, we've got to be careful because there are times when, you know, we could run the risk of endangering the baby when a C-section might be better for the baby. The baby truly is hypoxic and losing oxygen. And we have clear evidence based on the monitoring and those situations, I will do a C-section, you know, immediately you know, because again, that is a situation where that <laughs> double effectifies It's going to cause more harm to the mother, but the greater, it's not going to be irreparable harm to the mother. I mean, we're, we're prioritizing in that situation, the, um, the life of the baby over a relative, you know, a minor increased harm to the mother.
2: Um, Heather asked how common by percentage are emergency C-sections in general?
1: Um, I would look at, you know, so the World Health Organization had found that when C-section rates got beyond 18%, um, there about 17%, there wasn't any um, increase in infant um, survivability or there wasn't any decrease in what they would call perinatal um, morbidity and mortality. So more babies, we seem to reach the optimum point of, of baby safety at about 17%. The C-section rate nationwide in the U.S. at least is close to 40%, high 30s you know, as many places, it's 50%. So there's clearly more done than necessary. Some of those are done because the baby's breech. So in my opinion, you know, this hasn't been, you know, number of C-sections that really need to be done as an emergency are probably around 10%. And then another 18% for other, you know, medical reasons to require a C-section. And many of those might be because the baby's too big, the baby doesn't fit, um, the baby's in a bad position um, and things like that. Or she had a previous three C-sections and, you know, after that, after three C-sections is, is pretty much the set number where, you know, almost every um, OBGYN would agree that she, she really can't try to have a vaginal delivery after the third C-section.
2: A uh, last question, doctor. Um, somebody's asking how do pro-life um, and especially Catholic doctors navigate uh, the issue of contraception and those sorts of issues when dealing with patients?
1: Uh, uh, can you repeat the last part of that phrase my question
2: Uh, yes they were just wondering how does a catholic pro-life doctor navigate issues of contraception and things that go uh, directly against the faith when you're dealing with your patients
1: oh very good so i think that you know in in my practice i've never uh, i've been very blessed and i've I've, you know uh, the conviction never um prescribed hormonal birth control pill for contraception there's been rare situations where i mean like once a year maybe where a woman who's not in a sexual relationship where there's no issue of um, contraception or abortion, abortifacient effect of the pill. But um, generally speaking, I mean, it's not uh, patients. It's not a hard case to make, you know. When I, you know, just explain to them that I see their fertility as a healthy condition, and um, the birth control pill is is literally like abortion. It harms her health in so many ways. And if she's, in a, if she's not married, I don't feel I have a responsibility to, to, you know, to help her prevent from getting pregnant. If she is married, there are ways that she can abstain during the fertile time. And with our human intelligence and our modern understanding of fertility, um, fertility awareness-based you know, uh, spacing of children is very effective. It's not 100%, but only two things are. Um, the only two things that are one hundred percent effective at preventing pregnancy are total castration or total abstinence. <laughs> so
0: um, neither are popular options.
1: No, exactly, and and and, not, and and for a married person, I would never recommend the latter, and for you know anyone without ovarian cancer or testicular cancer, as a male, I'd never recommend the former. However. Um, Well, in marriage, you know, there's a time to recommend abstinence after delivery, after surgery. There there are situations where that's definitely appropriate for a a season, you know, even, you know, going on weeks, you know, but, um, but it's, there's no conflict. There's no conflict of me being able to provide optimal healthcare for women and not prescribing contraception. And, um, and women know before they come to me, a woman's not going to wait You know, two months to have an appointment with me, only then to find out that I'm not going to refill a birth control pill. We make it clear up front before they come into the office. So, so as to avoid any um, false expectations. But I've been very blessed. I, you know, even patients of mine who might otherwise, you know, go see someone else for um, birth control pills, they appreciate and by reputation, they've heard that I take good care of them. They come to me because they, you know, know, they're less likely to have a C section or because, you know, they have pain, you know, causing, you know, with endometriosis causing fertility that other doctors aren't really addressing. So, um, but, but yeah, the bottom line is that I believe that I'm able to provide better care for patients by not using birth control pills as kind of the default mode to cover everything. Because there is a a, a caveat I want to say there is that the use of birth control pills has become sort of the, the, the snake oil of a sense, a cure-all, you know, for, you know, hundreds of female medical conditions. It's just the pill is proffered and, and suggested as a solution. And the reality, as I like to say, is it doesn't really cure any of the problems that it's, that it's, that it's, um, uh, that it's given what the supposed um, intention of curing. And many of them it makes worse. Even endometriosis as a cause of pelvic pain, the underlying endometriosis can be made worse watches on the pill, while it might give a temporary relief of symptoms similar to Motrin or polycystic ovarian syndrome. It makes the underlying metabolic problems with PCOS worse, particularly with uh, metabolism, insulin resistance. So um, I, I'll just sum it up by saying that, you know, I find that, um, that I'm able to provide best care for patients by not being misled to pr- promoting birth control pills um, while ignoring the harms that it does to women.
0: Dr. Damon, as always, it's great to have you on, and I'm sure we'll have you on again. We've we discussed I, in, in, in full measure the Dobbs decision from uh, on an objen's perspective, a faithful one. So I, it ne- it's never really full measure, but I really appreciate a lot of your honest answers here today. Um, thanks a million. Thank you and uh, happy 4th we'll, we'll get up yes, together soon here uh look forward and, to it yeah, yeah. Me, me too the rest of you god bless you god bless america america's 246th mm-hmm. birthday awaits on monday read my catholic republic defense piece in 1 peter 5 that day and enjoy your families enjoy your freedom's day hail
1: mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother
0: of god Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women,
1: and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Holy Mary, of God. us sinners, now
0: the hour of our death. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the
1: fruit of thy womb. Holy Mary, of God. us sinners, now the hour of our death. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou
0: amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Jesus.